You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I'm going to tell you something, people. I wasn't really that worried about the coronavirus. I know it's a lot in the news, and I tend to be skeptical sometimes. But then I was sitting in my room the other night watching TV, and I heard that two people died in the Seattle area, which is very scary because I'm supposed to fly to Seattle in a week. So basically, it's for work. I found out where I'm going to go. It's only five miles from the outbreak. So I decided to cancel my trip. I said, the hell with it. Me and Joanne are going to Jamaica at the end of this month. That's the last thing I need to get quarantined out there and miss a great trip. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's a very, very talented musician, part of the group Rembrandt's. He's a singer, songwriter, and my guest is Phil Solom. How you doing, Phil? I'm good, Steve. Now, you were just on a cruise. Did, now, now, does that scare did it scare you a little bit when the news started breaking out about coronavirus? Uh, yeah, I must say it was a, a bit uh, scary out there. I mean, there we were trapped in the ocean suddenly, and this was happening simultaneously. And, of course, when you go on these cruises, you have to sign off on all these you know, health papers and everything. They're very official about everything. And there's you know thousands of people on this boat, and they're... Uh, they're all saying, I'm fine. <laughs> but, you know, during the trip, you're shaking everyone's hands. And it's like, you know, you're being also followed around by people with, uh, you know, like germ killer stuff. <laughs> they spray all over everything. So uh, it's like, what's happening here? It was just extra intense. Now, now, what's it like when you play a cruise? I mean, is it, you know, it was the train cruise and... Um... How did you come up, end up being on that cruise? And what's it like as a performer to be on the cruise? Because everybody knows who you are, and you probably don't get a lot of peaceful downtime. Uh, yeah, that's something that I, I wasn't really aware of going into it. You know, that it's like wherever you wander on the ship, everyone wants to say hi, and they have a story about how they heard you for the first time and all that sort of stuff. So it's like... Wow. Okay. And then you walk away from a 10 minute conversation with one group of people and bam, you're right in another one. So it's, uh, you know, you kind of have to be prepared for that. And I was not necessarily, but you know, it was a good time. Everyone was uh, very friendly and cool. Now you've been playing music for a long time. I believe you picked up the guitar a little before being a teenager. What were your influences when you were a kid? What was the music you were listening to? Well, it was a pretty wide variety. Uh, I didn't really have a, much of a focus on anything. But uh, I must say that when I when I discovered Glenn Campbell, that was when my musicality sort of formed, I think. Because he had a show, you know, when his first hits happened, this shows how old I am, this was back in the early 70s. And... Um, you know, he had, he had the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, which my family would gather around and watch. And he had every kind of guest on there. So I picked up a lot of influences from that. And then Glenn, to me, was just like the most brilliant, you know, player and singer that I'd ever heard. So uh, that really rubbed off on me. Now what, made, kind of from there. now, what made you decide to finally pick up a guitar? Well, my dad played guitar and sang really greatly. And, uh, you know, he, he taught me the basic kind of cowboy chords and how everything fit together. And I just, I sort of was wired that way. And it just came pretty naturally. The only thing that, you know, when you're a kid, your fingers have a hard time pressing down on the strings. So uh, that was the thing that kind of stopped me initially from, you know, really jumping into it because it just kind of hurt. And then eventually, the more you the more you do it, the, the, the calluses build up and that sort of thing. So when did you start focusing on your actual music? What? How old were you? I was 11. And were you writing yeah, songs or were you just picking up guitar and playing? I mean, what was, what was the course of action? Well, I was trying to learn how to play along with, uh, you know, whatever music. And 
bizarrely, I think I, I kind of learned to write songs at the same time without really knowing it because I would, at the time I didn't think of it as writing songs. I just thought I was making up music, which is essentially the same thing. It's just got a different title. <laughs> so things I would make up, you know, I'd play stuff for people and say, they'd say, well, what, what's that? I don't know. I just made it up. And, uh, I never wrote anything down. I just kind of, I was uh, constantly creating stuff, making things out of, you know, all music is part of something else, I guess. And you just sort of uh, creatively continue it. And then I, I sort of felt at a point, it's like, geez, I don't seem to be able to uh, get anything exactly like what the versions are so people recognize them. So I, I guess I started really just uh, making up my own music pretty early on. Now, when did you form a band when you started looking for gigs? I mean, because what was the music scene like in Minnesota back then? Well, you know, that's when you're in school and you just sort of fall into what your friends are doing and you get together and, uh, you know, there's various versions of what that is. So I explored all sorts of stylistic stuff when I was a kid and then when I got you know a group together for myself and my buddies you know we we just focused we we did really wild you know kind of contorted um we we were really influenced by bands like Yes and King Crimson and stuff like that so we we went nuts and we, you know, we did a few covers of those things, and then we just started making up our own songs. Even though it was more like extended jams, but I, I know that most kids I would seem to get together with in jam sessions, uh, per se, would they kind of want to jam on one chord? Maybe you could get them to go to another chord at some point, but mostly, you know, mostly it was like blues jams and that sort of thing. But I, I was just all about where is this going to go next? Yeah. So, how, what what did you do? What direction did you take? Because you it seems like you had the idea. You wanted to be more chords. You started writing at a very young age. What did? Where did you decide you wanted your career to go? Well, I didn't really make any decisions. That's the funny part about it. I had no um, great expectations or, or a real clear picture. I just know I knew that I uh, was able to do whatever I wanted to do. So I, I sort of took one thing and stepped to the next thing, and it was pretty spastic to uh, go from one thing to another. And it, there was no real sense about it. You know, I didn't uh, map it out, and I, I didn't really have a, a style per se. In fact, I remember my little brother telling me when he was very, very young, he wrote on a piece of paper and slid it under my door. He said, you have no style. <laughs> and I think he was trying to, you know, I don't know that it was a compliment, but it, I took it to heart and it's like, yeah, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not this, that, or the other thing. I'm just sort of all these things. So nobody could put a, a label on me, I guess. Now, you know, I, I tried to drop into things that, that were doing certain styles, and I always took it too far, and I don't know if that was the appropriate uh, thing or not, but I knew that I was capable of uh, going pretty much any old direction. Now, now, how did you end up in L.A.? Well, it's a convoluted story, but uh, I intended to move to Phoenix, where my mom, after my father passed away, when I turned 18, she she moved to Phoenix. And, um, you know, I had the choice of whether I could just stay up in Duluth, where there was really nothing specific going on. I, I really wanted to move to London, actually. And, uh, but I, I went out to Phoenix because she bought a house out there, and some buddies of mine went out, you know, so we could start trying to find some gigs and then it turned out when we got around town in phoenix all these places were closing down as rock and roll clubs 
or any kind of music that we might have been into, and they were turning into discos. <laughs> this was in, you know, 1976, and everything was going disco, so it was very, uh, it's like, what, what the hell am I doing in Phoenix? So basically, just practically as soon as I got there, we ended up, uh, my friends and I took a trip out to L.A., and we just decided, let's just stay here. And we lived in our cars for a year. Oh, wow. So uh, that was kind of a heavy experience. <laughs> right. Now, now, what was the music scene like in L.A. at that time? Because I lived in L.A. for a long time, and, you know, it was the music scene was slowly drifting from what, what it used to be. I mean, I lived there just all through the 2000s. What was the music scene in L.A. when you got out there? Oh, it was fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, I totally just fell right into it. Uh, you know, there was everything. There was what was kind of going on in the early 70s was still trying to kind of hang on. And then the, the punk scene was kind of coming in. And I immediately made friends with all kinds of, uh, you know, scene maker type people. Usually, I think one of the first people I met out there was uh, Rodney Bingenheimer and, uh, you know, after a concert, he and uh, Kim Fowley were walking by and they somehow thought I looked like I should be in, somehow in the club, so they started talking to me. And uh, I was kind of invited to a lot of things that, you know, sort of accelerated that scene. And, uh, yes, it was fascinating. So when did you start to get in bands out there? Well, immediately. Uh, because I had brought friends with me that, you know, we tried to put something together and we just latched on to the scene. And some of the first people we met were uh, the guys in Quiet Riot, if you remember that band. Oh, yeah. It was back in the day. And uh, a guy who was trying to get into the band that we had, his name was Kelly well, his actual name was Doug Rhodes. Don't tell him I told you so. <laughs> but yeah, he, he changed his name to Kelly, and his brother was Randy Rhodes. So Randy and I kind of bonded. And their bass player, um, his name was Kelly Garney. Still is Kelly Garney. I mean, but I say was because it was that far in the past. Anyway, he invited us to go and, and play a gig with with him doing something in Glendale and that just kind of tipped the scale to where we you know we just kind of fell into this crowd and uh, it just took off from there you know started getting kind of serious and then we got uh, Randy brought us over to uh, their management company and we signed up with them and they tried to change our image and the whole you know we got really caught up in the whole Hollywood thing so, uh, yeah, everything escalated from there. Now, Great Buildings was a band you where I believe you met Danny Wilde in, right? Yeah, I met Danny very early on. Now, what, quick was his band. Now, what kind of music was Great Buildings playing? Uh, it was pretty epic rock. We had very, uh, you know, we kind of, you know, between the, the guys in the band, I think we sort of looked at bands like Queen and Roxy Music. Um, there was just, you know, between us, we had things that we all loved together, but the, the music was really different than most of what we were hearing around. And two of the guys from The Quick were the ones that, that formed Great Buildings, and I was just crazy about that band. So... When they asked me to join them, I, you know, I just jumped aboard right away. Like, so, how could I not? Yeah, exactly. Well, now you guys recorded an album, and then you broke up. What What did you do after that? Actually, we, we recorded two albums, but uh, there was a, a shift in, in the way things were going. We never put the second record out, but weirdly, it is now available. 
but for many years it was just in the can because uh, Sony Music, I guess, took over uh, Columbia Records that we were signed to. And meanwhile, uh, my then girlfriend had gotten pregnant, so she wanted to move to her home state of Minnesota. And, uh, you know, I had to make kind of a choice. Do I go back there and start a family, or do I stay in Hollywood and then whatever, you know, uh, the next... I, I just couldn't, I couldn't live with myself, so I, I bowed out. And we moved, basically started from scratch in Minneapolis, of all places. And when that happened, were you still playing music? You never really stopped playing music, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just, that's what I, I do and what I've always done, so uh, I just continued, but suddenly I was out of my, you know, it was weird because we had an eight-album deal with Columbia Records, and we only did two records, and basically when I said, hey, I, I can't do this because of, you know, life responsibilities and everything, basically the whole band just broke up. And Danny, you know, uh, Danny Wilde tried to continue, but uh, the bass player, Ian Ainsworth and myself, both kind of just stopped. And, the, you know, we dissolved the band officially and legally and everything. And then we uh, went our separate ways, but Danny and I just kept in touch. And uh, I helped him out on one of his solo projects. And, you know, several years later, it uh, it became obvious that, you know, when we get together, you know, good things would happen. So, uh, you know, we uh, got to the point where it's like, we better just keep doing what we do. And we became the Rembrandts. Now, how'd, how'd you come up with the name Rembrandts? Well, that's a weird one right there. I had a, uh, a band in Minnesota that was, it was basically my solo band and, you know, the guys backing me up. And I thought it should not be just my name that we're billed by. I, I thought I'd give them a name. So I kept trying to come up with something and they came up with whatever they did. And we had these long lists and nobody liked each other's ideas. And then one day I... I walked into rehearsal and down these stairs and there was a light bulb hanging above the, uh, the stairway. And right when I got under the light bulb, it's, you know, the, the kind of meme for when you uh, have an idea and the light right. goes on. <laughs> well, the name the Rembrandts just popped into my head right there and this bulb was just bare above my head and I said, how about the Rembrandts? And the guys all just looked at me and said, that's it. <laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> so, so you got the name and it, and it's stuck and it's funny when I lived, I lived in San Diego years ago when you, when the band had come out and I remember I saw a Rembrandt's t-shirt at this swap meet had all these rock shirts and I bought it and I wore it forever. Then it, it was one of those cheap shirts that fell apart, but I remember uh, the, it was a great shirt. So now, now you, you sit there, you have the Rembrandt's and then, you know, you and Danny have been getting together. When do you decide to press forward and go on as the Rembrandts? Well, it, it uh, kind of happened because I was going back and forth between Minneapolis and L.A. to work with him, and we had very quickly written a whole batch of material, and we were getting a, a publishing deal to you know do something with it. We weren't sure what. I guess we thought, well, we're just songwriters, you know, we're putting together demos and, and uh, demoing these songs. But uh, it became apparent that we had something going on, so we had to come up with a name for it. And again, we, you know, tossed names back and forth to each other, and once again, we couldn't come up with anything. And one day he, uh, he said, you know what, we really should be just the Rembrandts. And I said, well, that's been my band for the last year and a half. I, I, I don't really want to use that name. That's, that's that thing. You know, it was the name of my backup band. 
And so um, he kind of twisted my arm, and he, he had been <laughs> talking to people and using that name, and they'd all say, that's a great name. So uh, I guess it was just fate that we we were the Rembrandts. Now, how did you get your first the, the first record deal as the Rembrandts? Our manager, George Giz, uh, was shopping us around. Well, really, he was looking for a publishing deal. We got involved in Warner Brothers, and they thought we should be, you know, recording artists on a label. So all these labels just were courting us. And uh, we had meetings with all kinds of them, and they all wanted to turn us into something else. You know, they said, you've got great songs. We'll put you in the studio with George Martin. And we'll, uh, you know, this is maybe one of their, one of the many labels ideas. The biggest and, you know, craziest idea was like, we'll get George Martin to produce you and we'll get writers involved to, uh, you know, co-write with you. And that just turned us right off because we were making stuff by ourselves in the garage. And we were happy with it. But isn't it hard as an artist, I guess, to sit there and someone says, we'll do this. And I know, you know, you were doing stuff and you were happy with it. But isn't it, isn't it hard when someone says, hey, you can work with George Martin, who's such a name. I mean, how did you have the discipline to just say no? Were you just that confident in your work? It was mostly the, the fact that we heard the word, you know, change. You know, when somebody comes along and I think we had a really uh, clear idea of what it was we were doing, and it was different from everything else that was out there. And uh, when somebody says, you know, we'll, we'll change you or, or put you in with somebody who will, and of course, George Martin, that, that would have been a match made in heaven, of course, but whatever uh, label they they had going on, when they mentioned other writers getting involved and that sort of thing, or getting other musicians to track with us and whatnot, and we were just doing everything by ourselves. So, we, you know, maybe we were a little headstrong and egotistical about it, but we we stuck to our guns. Now, and how did you... Uh, oh, I was going to say, how did you re record that first album then? In Danny's Garage. By ourselves. So you recorded it, then what did, What could you do with it then? Because did you shop it, or what happened? Well, that was the thing. We we just basically shopped it as, as a, uh, a publishing sort of a demo. But uh, the turning point for us was we were asked by Derek Shulman of uh, Atco Records to meet with him about it. And he told us that uh, that he thought the record was already done, and all we did, all we needed to do was mix it properly, maybe add some sweeteners, you know, double some tracks, and put some backup vocals, which we did ourselves as well. But you know, we we took the budget from our publishing deal, and we bought a a sixteen track tape recorder of all things, and we took our eight track demo stuff dumped it over to the 16 tracks and then added some more stuff. You know, we put real drums on there. We got Pat Mastelotto, uh, our buddy from a few years prior. And uh, his band, it was called Mr. Mister. And uh, we shared the same manager. So Pat would come over and lay down tracks. You know, we had done like kind of scratch tracks. So we got his expertise on there. And we just kind of dolled it up a little bit and then we mixed it. We, you know, bought a, a new mixer. And it wasn't real pro kind of stuff. It was kind of, uh, you know, the stuff you can just buy at the music <laughs> store. <laughs> and we, we basically proved that... Uh, you can make your own records at home. Yeah, well, and in it, those days, it was it was not the thing to do. Right, everyone does it now, but back then people weren't doing it. No, there was a 
kind of a thing against it. And nobody would really believe that you could do that. Somehow we got away with it. You know, we were careful about our recordings. We're not real pro-engineers or anything, but, you know, we learned a lot. And uh, we pulled it off. Now, once you had that album done, who started playing it? Like, when was the first time you heard you were yourself on the radio? When was the first time you heard a Rembrandt song on the radio? Wow. Where was the first time? That's a good question. <laughs> Excuse me. I wish I had the answer for that. I should. <laughs> you know, it's, it's on some piece of paper somewhere. Buried in stacks and, you know. I've moved so many times, I've forgotten, but yeah, it, Whoever was the first to play it, I'd, I'd like to know that myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you probably guys, somewhere in California. So you start you, the album. Does the album start selling well? How you have to make videos? How did that all work? Well, Atco Records, you know, they got behind us, and they, you know, we had a pretty decent budget, and they they had all the. Uh, all the connections we needed. We made some really cool videos. And everything was just like magically coming together. And we were blown away by it. it was, you know, is this for real? That kind of thing. Now, now, how does your life change? I mean, you're recording in a garage. You're doing it completely different than everyone. Now you're on TV. You're, you know, your songs are getting played. How does your life change? Do you change a lot? Or, I mean, what happens? Well, we got extremely busy very quickly. So, yeah, our lives definitely it went from being very casual and, you know, kind of not really knowing what was going on to suddenly having itineraries every day. You're going to be here. <laughs> you know, we traveled a lot. For two years, they worked us very hard for our first album. And we started working on our second album during that period, but the first record was getting more and more popular. We had a hit with uh, Just The Way It Is Baby, which happened to be the first song that we did. And uh, it was very crazy. It was coming at us so fast we didn't have time to duck, you know? Right, now, now everything's coming at you fast. How are you getting keeping time to work on that second album? Well, any chance we got, and by that point in time, we had each bought the same 16-track uh, machine, so I did a lot of work at my house, and then we would send tapes to each other, or we'd just go to each other's city and bring tapes with us and keep adding on to it. Meanwhile, you know, we'd be on the road and doing all kinds of shows and promo stuff so it just you know we put it together as best we could in the amount of time that we had now in, in that time when, when you were starting off and to this day how did you guys split up the songwriting did you both write music and lyrics or how did you do it and how did you come to a happy medium when you knew something was the right fit well it's I guess the, the days of us sitting down together and starting songs from scratch started kind of waning because we didn't, you know, it's really hard to write on the road because you're just too busy and there's, there's no real time. So we wrote a lot of stuff by ourselves, but we'd get together and show each other our ideas or, you know, we'd be bringing these tapes to each other's studios and just adding to it and we'd amass a pile of songs and then we'd agree which ones we thought sounded like Rembrandt songs and we basically did the uh, you know we'd, we'd split them it, it was like the Lennon-McCartney style thing we just put Solemn Wild on all our uh, tracks and you know some would be more Danny and some would be more me and uh, but we you know we didn't uh, publicly really let that be known it was just as if we had sat down and written them together from the start 
So how did the song, how did I'll Be There For You, which, you know, I'm sure when you guys recorded that, you never thought it would be heard. I mean, I don't even know how many times that show's played. I mean, millions and millions. How did that come about? Well, we were asked to record, actually, the, what I thought the, uh, the deal was, was the show wanted us to write a song for them. So I traipsed out to California thinking that's what we're going to do. And then we met up with the, uh, the uh, musical director for the show, Michael Sloth, and I had all my ideas for songs. And then he said, uh, well, that's all great, but we, ha we have a, a kind of a ditty that we're thinking, you know, how about this for an idea? And so he played us his idea for what it, you know, what the amount of time and what the parts were gonna be like and what key it should be in. So we kind of just went along with that. And then we, you know, started playing it along with him and we kind of took over and turned it into our you know made it sound as much like a Rembrandt song as we could it was only a 42 second long thing with an intro a, a verse and a chorus and uh, it's like well how about this and the next day we went in and, and did the actual vocals because we were wiped out from the first day and uh yeah, after that, boom, next thing you know, it's on TV. Now, so, uh, did you did you do a longer version, So, or was it, or did you, they want you to keep it at 42 seconds? I know you did a, a different version on another album, but did you, at that point, what did you do with that song? Did you expand the 42 seconds? Well, exactly, because our, our record company president, who was a new person at the time, who had taken over because the label, you know how back in those days, and maybe this still happens, but these sort of independent labels are part of a larger company, and ours was part of Atlantic. So Atlantic decided we're, we're going to absorb APTO and turn it into a branch that's already like a larger company, and that, that was called East-West. So that had happened almost simultaneously. And the new president of that uh, label, Sylvia Rohn, decided that we were going to, because that song suddenly, uh, it was taken off because people were requesting it at radio. So uh, she said, you guys better uh, put this on your record. Write more to it. Make it into a full song. We're putting it on your record. And we didn't really want to do that because our record just didn't sound, you know, it was a little, it was kind of dark. And that was, you know, we were almost done with it. We were in the final mix stages. So to, to add this peppy, happy tune in there kind of went against our grain. We had nothing against the show or the, the song itself. It's just like, it doesn't really fit in with the rest of our music, you know? And suddenly they're, they're trying to make a big deal of it. And, uh, well, we had to do that, so we wrote more parts. And actually, we kind of darkened it up, I must say. <laughs> and the, the Friends people, uh, they thought we did the opposite of what they would have wanted to do. So they insisted we get together and sit down with the, the producers and... Uh, and Allie Willis, who uh, initially came up with most of the lyrics on the 42-second version, and we, I guess we scrambled to try to come up with something that was going to be suitable for them, but also suitable for us. And uh, kind of banged through a few things, and we put a, a fresh bridge in there, and it... Uh, came together well and then we recorded that you know in another studio that was not ours and uh popped it right in and they uh they actually added it on to the already printed you know track list and they put it on the end of the record as a hidden track so if you if you wanted to find it you have to 
like let the last song fade out and then wait a few seconds and then the friends theme would come in now what was that like as you said you were, you were getting you know you're writing more darker and stuff like that but when you play shows everyone's going to going to want to hear that song what version would you do? Would you do the, 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 the one version, the longer one, or would you just do the 42-second blurb for them? Because you probably didn't really want to play either of them because you didn't want it on your album. Well, it was too late for that. It already became a hit. And so it was like, we even tried at first like to, um, to maybe open up with that song. I remember being on stage someplace in this gigantic audience out there, but it didn't look like our normal audience. There was a lot of, uh, you know, teenagers and their moms. <laughs> and right. Like, All right, this is not our normal audience. <laughs> and and then Danny said, uh, okay, we're going to get this out of the way because I think this is what you want. We did the Friends theme, they all went nuts, and then they kind of filtered out for the rest of the show. It's like, all right, I guess if that's what, what it's going to look like, we got to put that song at the end. <laughs> it's so funny. People it went, yeah, it kind of backfired on us. But, uh, you know, at the time, it, it seemed like we didn't know how to accept it. And we didn't want to deny it. We just, you know, we had a, a giant hit song. It went number one for 11 weeks. What are you going to do? Right. You know, I'll play it. Now, after the that after LP wrapped, you took a hiatus. Was it? Were you guys just tired of the work, or were you tired of just the record companies all of a sudden getting more and more involved? I mean, what happened? Well, everything kind of imploded. We were overworked. Uh, there, you know, it was like eight days a week. There was really hardly any breaks. I personally was having all kind of meltdowns because I barely ever got to go home and see my family. We would always camp out in LA. I'd either have to fly my family out to be with me or, and then there would be only limited time. It was very expensive. And when I got home, when I, when I did get a chance to be home, I was, you know, going insane. So, um, at some point, I, I guess I had to make the decision, like, can I keep doing this? Or we need a break, you know. They weren't going to give us a break. We had a year of commitments. So I said, at the end of this year, I'm taking off for a while. You know, I didn't want it to go away forever. I just, I needed to get a, get a life, take a breath. And uh, basically, yeah, we took three years and we had more commitments with the label. So Danny decided he was going to make, you know, he started writing songs with our bass player that we had uh, touring with us at the time. And I just wasn't involved in that. And I took off and he put another record out thinking it was going to be a Danny Wilde record, but they insisted on, on using the Rembrandt's name. So they put Danny Wilde plus the Rembrandt's. And then uh, I guess there was really not a lot of activity when that came out. And they made it all go away. And then we were, uh, you know, back to square one. Now, when you, when you said, you know, when you took that hiatus, what was it like in the beginning when you were decompressing? Because you were so, you wanted to see your family, but you were so used to a certain lifestyle. How long did it take you to adjust to saying, oh, well, I'm not going on stage tonight, or I'm not dealing with the press? How long did it take you to actually suddenly get back to what we would call a normal life? Well, my normal life was so uh, all over the shop, so yeah, it, it was it was a hard kind of a thing, but I got to see my kids, and but, you know, then that started crumbling. So basically, I was decomposing. The opposite of composing. Okay. But actually, I was composing because I, I had another band that was like my kind of alter ego stuff, band called Thrush. And we had been making recordings 
period. In fact, that started in 1994, I believe. So I had this kind of pressure valve, and it was a very high-energy rock thing, which I couldn't do in the Rembrandts. And I had to, you know, let that that uh, steam come out. So there was that. And it never really got released. These things are just kind of... We're hoping someday maybe somebody will be able to hear that. We can continue. But, you know, I, I didn't want any more record company pressure or any of the kind of stuff that goes with that. I didn't want to hop right back out there. And the other guys in, in that band, Thrush, they were busy doing their stuff with other, you know, projects. One of the guys was in Prince's band and uh, the other one was becoming a producer. And so, you know, we all were just busy on our own, so we never really made it into what it probably could have been. Now, when did you get back together with Danny? Uh, in 2000. We just started communicating and saying, hey, you know, kind of miss doing what we do. So he actually came up to uh, Minneapolis, spent a couple of weeks up there and maybe even longer, camped out at my house and started churning out a bunch of more songs. And then uh, my Thrush guys got involved with us. Uh, John Fields, the, the bassist of that band, was becoming very good at production. And he lived right down the road from me and had his studio stuff set up. I had a studio myself, but I, I wasn't really uh, fully functional with that. And he was much more kind of pro about it. And he, he uh, let us start making a record in there. And then he produced that one, which was unusual for us because you know we'd usually produce ourselves. I guess we co-produced it with him, really. But uh, we all kind of hit it off, and we came up with a uh, very fresh material that, you know, we didn't have a record company. Nobody was hanging over us, telling us how to do anything. It was just like going back to the beginning. So, uh, yeah, we kind of started over. Now, you started over, but then also, eventually you also released a solo album. What made you decide to do that? Well, my solo album was just you know, very, uh, it's very unprofessional, you might say, you know, it's, it doesn't sound, uh, I mean, I, I was working on my production skills myself, but I, I didn't really have great gear. I'd sold a lot of stuff. And so I was just using the bare minimum. And, you know, everyone does sort of solo records, I guess, but I, I didn't really have anything behind it. It wasn't really uh, made for commercial, you know, to be devoured by people. I guess I just kind of put it out myself, and I haven't even heard that thing in, in uh, what, what feels like decades. But, you know, it was just uh, kind of some stuff I had to get out there somehow. I didn't really want to do big business behind it so I didn't shop it or I didn't try to get uh, you know pro sound advice or anything on it I just kind of put it out friends were telling me just put it out there you know and then of course nobody heard about it or cared so it went uh, went away so now in 2019, the Rembrandts released another album? Yes, we did. Now, what made you come back together and write new music? Because it was a while to write together. And how did your writing styles change? Because you were, it was years since you worked together. No, it really, it never really changed. Those songs are a, sort of a, handpicked from a pile of songs that we had written intending for them to be Rembrandt songs that we we never did anything with and we kept thinking well maybe next year we'll put these out 
And then a year would go by, and it's like, well, we got a bunch of more songs. Let's add these. So we just didn't know, uh, you know. And this is when the music business was taking a big turn. Um, everyone was wondering what's the point of being on a label anymore, unless you're real young and ready to, you know, get out there. And and of course, I guess it was. Be- because of the, uh, the download factor and the expense of doing production and putting out, uh, you know, physical product and all that, people were stealing music and getting away with it, and suddenly it wasn't very lucrative. So what was the incentive? So uh, we just never really... You know, we'd go out and do shows together. Mostly, we, uh, Danny and I would do acoustic shows. Whoever would have us, we made a you know decent living off of that. And we just never really thought that anyone cared about our, our new material. They just wanted to hear the same stuff. Every once in a while, we'd throw a new song in, and it's like, well, we make these songs to be to sound like a band plays them. And uh, that just wasn't happening. There wasn't enough money involved in, in doing the shows to, to do full band gigs. You know, it was just kind of a support system for us. I mean, the, the actual gigs themselves. So it's like, well, the two of us can do that. And maybe that's what, what our uh, lives will look like. We'll just go out and do acoustic duo things and that'll be that. But once in a while, we'd get a gig where... You know, they'd want a full band and put together several versions of that. But we never got enough of those shows to make it worthwhile to uh, to keep it together. And everybody that would get involved with us was busy doing other things. So it was really hard to concentrate and really, you know, have a, a steady unit. Like back in the day, you know, we'd always have somebody who would commit to being with us and suddenly that was not really what was going on so uh you know it was like a huge break and we uh just lived our our separate lives and got together occasionally and then meanwhile we'd amassed all this material and someone introduced me to uh, a record company called blue elan in the last couple of years and I followed up with that and it turned out the president of that company uh, was interested in what we were doing and I developed a dialogue with him Kirk Passage is his name and we uh, got our manager involved and it took about a year to get a deal put together that we were all happy with and then we just took this material and had it mastered. Danny did most of the mixing on that. So, uh, you know, we had some great sounding stuff. He had kept all his gear. Meanwhile, my life had kind of fallen apart. I went through a, you know, real dark period with a giant divorce and everything else like that. And so Danny took all the, the music and got to be hands-on with the mix but here we were again back where we were in control of it so you know it was uh, kind of a whole 360 there that happened that we went through and suddenly we had a record company that was interested in us and was willing to put it out without any other uh, people getting their hands in there and we thought, all right, man, it's, it's like it used to be, so let's let's run with it. And they very uh, graciously took it upon themselves to, to make it uh, happen. So we've had a lot, a lot more um, attention paid to us than, than we had in a great long while, so can't beat that. 
Yeah, and now are you happy with the results? I mean, you know, it's new. It's I know it's older music, but it is new music to you because it was never really produced. What? What? Do you, are you happy with it? And are you going to record again? Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's like we've, you know, we're like the Phoenix Rising or something. Um, the Rembrandt's Renaissance. Because we, we just kind of went away, and now there's attention suddenly being paid to us. And that, that weirdly, coincided with this uh, Friends uh, anniversary stuff. So, you know, that tied together with having a new record out that people are actually paying attention to kind of uh, magically worked. And uh, I guess we'll, let's see if the rest turns into history. Now, are you, are you guys going to plan a tour? Well, we're kind of flirting with that idea. We're waiting for the right tour package to come together. Our manager is, you know, kind of scoping it out. If we, you know, if, if people are ready to uh, experience what we got going on, we will do it. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you. Uh, we were going back and forth for a while because you're a very busy guy. And uh, the web, the website is Rembrandt's.net. How can people, do you tweet or anything like that? How do people catch up with you? Well, if uh, if I was more on top of it, I'd be right in there doing it. We're not real, uh, you know, social media savvy as our record company certainly would like us to be. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a, a basic website and, you know, we've got a Facebook website and we've got uh, all the Instagram stuff. But it's I'm I'm just not wired to be that in touch. You know, I'm sort of a hermit myself. Okay. Danny is to some degree. And we should just be uh, Herman's hermits too. You know. <laughs> well, people look up the Rembrandts. Uh, go go buy their music. Go you know you can find their music. Go buy it. You know stuff. You know. That's the way to do it. We used to have to buy albums back in the day. Now, people don't have to do that. It was a great process when you're buying an album and you look at the liner notes and all that crap. But now, no one does that. So, people, check out the Rembrandts. Um, and, Phil, thank you so much for taking time with me. People, uh, you can check out my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 775 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram at Cooper Talk One. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.